14 days until Easter, and I don't know about you, but I am super excited. I don't know if it's me getting older or if people just stop letting me do as many fun things at Easter, but something's happening where the things I look forward to around Easter aren't the same as they used to be. Does that make sense to anybody else? So I used to love a lot of the stuff of the season. I still love it, but man, what I look forward to now is those moments of the season where I get to sit next to you all where I get to sing with you, where I get to reflect on truth that's changed my life. And I, I'm pumped about this. So I know we already saw the times. So I want to put them up one more time because I think it's really important that we don't forget that there's a lot of times for a lot of reasons and a lot of people, and here they are. Okay, so Saturday, the night before, April 16th, 6.30, you should see this also on a card in your seat. So if you're looking for that, you might be sitting on it, you stole someone else's, just hold it up if you want. On that card are all of these times, so 8.30, 10 in chapel and auditorium, and then 11.30. And on the back of that card, you'll actually see, if you remember, we talked about writing the names down of some friends, family members, neighbors that you believe need to have an encounter with Christ. And maybe they have faith already, but they don't have a church that they're, uh, that they're attending. So you have the chance to pray for them, invite them. And it doesn't have to wait till Easter. You can invite them next week. You can actually invite them into your home for a cup of coffee, a conversation, and just talk to them about what Easter means to you. So that's an option in front of us. I also wanted to share something else with you. On the screens, you'll see a number. And that number, you can text the word Easter to. And uh, if you want to, you can pull your phone out right now. Some of you already have it, and that's great. So pull the phone out and text that number. Text the word Easter to that number. You'll see something interesting happen. What this is, is this is an invite for you to pass on to someone else for Easter. And so some people worked really hard and got one of my favorite features I've ever seen on the internet on this invite. And if you look at it, you'll know what it is. The simple things impress me. But uh, you can get this. You can see it. I invited my wife to Easter because I wasn't sure what her plans were. So far, so good. She thinks she's going to be showing up. So I tested this out already. So text Easter to that number. Send it to someone with a personal message. Just say, hey, this is my church. I'd love for you to attend with me. And uh, I'll meet you at the 830 or I'll meet you at 1130, whatever it is. So super pumped about Easter. We're starting the Easter series today. And so we'll continue to talk about for the next few weeks uh, this power over concept. And the power over concept includes a lot of big ideas, but they all point to Jesus and the power he has over so many things and really everything. So the other day, I was, uh, I was getting ready to leave for work, and I walked out, and uh, walked out underneath my carport, and I was blown away because it was just a torrential downpour. And normally, that just would have been a, yep, it's raining, get in the truck and go to work, but for some reason, I just kind of paused. And I don't know why, but there's a cooler under my carport just sitting there from the last time I haven't cleaned it out for some reason. And I sat down on the cooler, and I just watched the rain for a second. And yes, it was amazing, it was beautiful, but what hit me was actually a weird thought. What hit me was this realization of how much time and energy and effort we spend on a regular basis trying not to be affected by the forces of nature and how nature just doesn't care. Like it didn't matter if I had a raincoat on, it didn't matter if I was getting in my truck with a roof on, it didn't matter if I was going to park as close as I could to the building and run into the building with this massive roof over top of us, it just didn't matter, the rain was going to rain no matter what Matt does. And I was thinking about that, actually it's not just rain, it's like everything like, creation just does its thing, and we're kind of at its mercy. And I feel like in my own life, I was thinking about it later in the week, I was like, man, I kind of have two responses to that realization. The first is I try to control the things that I really can't, like nature, and you can affect it, right? You put a raincoat on, and, you know, AC and heat, all that stuff helps, but try to control it. The other response is just to be in awe of it. 
And so if it's a rainstorm or it's an ocean, maybe your place is the ocean where you just stand in absolute awe. Why is it that like 30 seconds next to the ocean can put you in your place? Do you know what I mean? Walking next to a waterfall and encountering like the beauty of just this time wearing down a waterfall in the middle of the woods, like just all of a sudden you're just like, man, I'm in absolute awe of this. Driving anywhere in the upstate for the most part, you're going to go by a lake and you're just going to be, man, this is beautiful. I just have this sense of awe overcome me sometimes. Maybe you feel the same way. So we tend to try to want to control this stuff or we're in awe of it. And the awe side leads us to this awareness of there's something beyond me that did this, right? I think there's just this creator. And not only am I in awe of this lake or stream or ocean or mountain, but I'm in awe of how it got here and who put it here. And then there's those moments where you're in awe of, of nature or creation, but it's not a good feeling. I think it was last Wednesday, maybe, maybe two Wednesdays ago, where we got an alert on our phone about a, a tornado warning. And the awe I felt in that moment was, was the only option because I knew I couldn't control it, right? My first thought was I better get home and make sure the kids and, and Anna are good, but like I can't control what happens. And I'm absolutely in awe of a power bigger than me. And if there's a power bigger than the power bigger than me, man, that's crazy. And I think that's a pretty normal response most of us have had. It's really, it's been our response from the beginning of time. People have always tried to negotiate this relationship between creation and us. And even though we're somewhere part of creation, there's this just real stark understanding that there's everything out there, external forces bigger than us and then us. And those external forces that are bigger than us, they, they stir up some sort of response inside of us. The external and the internal start to just kind of compete almost. And, and next to the ocean, the external makes me feel a sense of peace and wonder. When I hear about a tornado, it makes me feel anxiety and worry. And then somewhere in history, there's this concept where God starts to, to come into that tension right in the intersection of creation and all it does to me and the internal of who I am. God comes into that tension or that intersection and starts to do something that I can't do. He displays his power over the creation, external, and even the internal of me, his created. He starts to exert his power. There's something about that that I'm trying to figure out that that we're going to study a little bit today. Those examples are all throughout my life, but they're actually all throughout us. And they're actually a really, really old story. I never recognized until recently how often stories in Scripture are just completely rooted in this intersection of God and people and the rest of creation. I almost take it for granted, but, but in a couple minutes, we're actually gonna, you're going to help me out. We're going to explore some of these things in the Old Testament and the New Testament and just see how many times this stuff happens. Before we do, we have to understand, for most of our existence as people, we've been trying to explain that intersection. And a lot of us, most of us throughout history have just decided that the big forces of nature are somehow connected to someone or something that should be worshipped. So if it's raining and I like that, I give praise to rain or the God of rain. If it's raining or, and I don't like that, I, I ask for protection. If it's not raining and I want it to, I pray to a fertility God. If there's a mountain and it's powerful and it's the strongest thing I'm aware of, I ask for protection from everything that's not as strong. And there's this really common thing where we just bow to things bigger than us. 
And then the Hebrew God comes along and says, of all the people out there doing this normal thing, I want you to do something different. I want you to understand, my people, that of all those powerful things, of all those big things, of all the stuff you could bow to that are bigger than you, I'm bigger than them, and you shouldn't bow to them because they bow to me. And when you bow to me, the power over all of creation is now somehow available to you. And that's a weird idea. That's a really weird idea. And I think people have always thought that was a weird idea. And then when we read about how this happens, again, for those of us who are really, really churched, we're like, yeah, that just, that's, that's what happens. But that's weird. So our story starts in a garden, which I think is kind of weird. And we're in this garden and, and it goes south really quickly. Not long after, the story starts to, to bend into the flood and there's this massive cataclysmic experience a flood way out of our control, and, and yet God has power over it somehow. There's a story of Jonah where he goes and he's disobedient, and God somehow allows a fish to swallow him up, and the fish has power over Jonah, but God has power over the fish. And that's weird. Job describes how God has storehouses full of snow. In poetic language, he talks about how God leads Ursa Minor and Major out from their den, the bear and her cub. And all of Job in the later part of the book is just all about God's power over creation. People of God are trapped in Egypt and God sends plagues and every plague is a power dynamic with one of Egypt's gods that represent those things they bow to and God's like, no, I can mess with all of it. Watch this. And then ultimately he brings them out of Egypt and he has them walk straight through on dry land through the Red Sea. That's not how seas work, but that's what God did. And then the people are in the desert and they need water and God provides water from a rock. They need food and he provides this food that no one knows what it is. They literally just call it, what is this? And we call it manna. And then he brings quails from out of nowhere and whole just flocks. I don't know if they're called flocks, but lots and lots of quails come and just land and they're just eating quails. That's not how nature works, but for God it is. And as people are trying to figure out, what do I do with all of this? There's a moment where there's a battle raging between God's people and their enemies and, and someone asks for the sun to stand still and God honors the request and it just stays there. It says it's the only time it's ever happened. I've never seen it, but I'm pretty sure it's the only time it's ever happened. God continues to exert his power over creation for his people. There's a fiery furnace. If you guys remember, there's four people who are disobedient to a king and they're obedient to God. And so they get thrown in a furnace and everybody knows how fire works. It's not good. The furnace was so hot that the people who are throwing them in, they're getting their stuff singed. And the guys get in there and they're just, just standing there, just chilling in the fire. Everyone's like, how did that happen? Nobody knows. People bow to God because they're like, whatever is more power than, powerful than fire, we're going to bow to it. And then Daniel comes along. He's like, fire, please watch this. He disobeys the king, obeys God, gets thrown in a, a, a den of lions. And the king is like, I know what's going to happen. The next morning, he runs to find Daniel. And he's like, Daniel, there's no way, but are you okay? And Daniel's like, yeah, I'm great. It's been a good night. How? That's so weird. God's power over creation is a part of our story we still try to wrestle with. Like, how does this even make sense? And despite living in a, in a natural world that was chaotic and unpredictable and powerful, people knew their place for the most part. They were at the mercy of creation. But the God of Israel said, no, it's at my mercy. And then Jesus comes along and the coolest baby announcement of all time. God sends this cosmic interruption 
And this star, for people who have been studying it for years and years and years, signals something new is happening, and they actually follow it. So random people show up in this little small town in the Middle East and say, hey, something's important going on. I don't know what it is, but this star says that something's happening. They're like, oh, yeah, Jesus was born. And Jesus starts to live out his life, and he starts to show his power over creation in little weird ways, not always the big ones like the storms and stuff, but like sometimes he's at a wedding, and all they've got is water left. And apparently that was a big party foul. Like they were out of wine and Jesus is like, no problem. And he makes water into wine. And that's super weird and kind of like niche. Like, why would you do that? But like, hey, he did it. And then as Jesus starts to do his ministry, he starts walking around and lepers start touching him and he's okay with it. In fact, he touches the lepers. And anybody that knows leprosy knows that's not how you're supposed to do it. But rather than catching leprosy, the people catch healing. That's all backwards. And then he's walking to do a miracle one day, and a woman interrupts him by grabbing a hold of his, his robe. And the woman who's been under the knife and had doctors trying to help her and done all of this stuff who can't find healing, in a split second she finds the healing she was after. That's not how it works. Lame people are unable to walk and are laying just begging for mercy, and after Jesus talks to them, they stand up and, and walk. And then Jesus' power over the things that have power over us is on display constantly. One time there's this fig tree, and it's not producing fruit, and Jesus gets mad at it, which I think is hilarious. He's like, you're supposed to produce fruit, and you're not, so you're done. And he curses it, and it just stops. It dies right there. And that's weird. Again, a very niche miracle. I don't understand it, but he does it. One time he gets bread and fish, and there's not enough. And so he just multiplies it for thousands of people. And again, I read that. I grew up in the church, and I just read that, and I'm like, man, that's neat. No, that's crazy. That's the weirdest thing that would have happened in a single person's life ever. And it happened to a whole group of people more than once. You ever notice how bad the disciples were at fishing? Like, not trying to throw shade, but they were real bad. Over and over again, they're just failing completely at their only job. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, like, go just throw it over there. And they're like, that's not how fishing works, Jesus. And he's like, okay, <laughs> try it. Nets full. Instantaneously. He just completely drives their fishing success over and over again. This one time, uh, Mark, one of Jesus' closest friends, is recording this story where Jesus calms a storm. We talked about it. And he, he's sleeping, he goes from sleeping to like yelling at the waves, like scolding them, zero to 60. And he's just like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to stop doing this. And it just truly listens. And it feels so casual because Jesus just does that. And the people are in awe. And they're scared. They're actually, because they were scared of the waves, they're now scared of Jesus because the waves are scared of Jesus. And mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Jesus has power over stuff that doesn't make any sense. And this all really matters. And it matters for this really specific reason. Because as we're trying to negotiate as people how all of this stuff works at the intersection of creation that we can't control and we're in awe of, and the God who interrupts all of it, he just chooses for some reason to let us watch this experience take place over and over again. And there's an author who, who writes something that I think is so helpful. Author Josh McDowell says, history is the theater of divine activity. I love the way he put that. 
It's a theater of divine activity. You get to watch on this grand stage as, as God does this stuff. One knows God not by arcane philosophies or just things you're told to believe or, or books that you read that just say all kinds of good things about God. We learn to believe about God by what he has done within space and time. You don't follow Jesus if you follow him because of things you've been told about things he said, about things that were said. You follow Jesus if you follow Jesus because of what he's done. The demonstrated power over things is what takes my breath away with Jesus. And so as he's doing all of this, people are trying to reconcile something, and it's actually something new and weird. See, there have always been forces bigger than us. And then there was the God who was bigger than those forces that we bow to because he has power over creation. This is the first time in human history where that force was embodied and now I could touch their hand. I could hear their voice. This was a person now walking in front of us who claims to have power and then proves it and demonstrates the power that this person has. And the question is, what's happening where there is a person before me who is doing all the stuff that only that unknown God was able to do? How do I make sense of that? When God shows up with skin on and has power over creation, I'm confused about what to do next. There's a scene that takes place that's similar to the calming of the storm. It's actually a different storm. And storms were a big deal to people in this time because water, you needed it and you had to work with it, right? But you couldn't control it. Water to many ancient civilizations demonstrated like this chaotic evil. It wasn't a good, you didn't look out on a lake and think, oh, that's so beautiful. There may have been that, but like to be on the water was scary. It was a risk. In creation's story, God takes this chaotic evil of water and he puts it in order and tells it where to go. That's a bold claim to ancient people. You can tell chaotic water where to go, yeah. So there's a scene where Jesus has just fed a huge crowd of people on a hillside and he sends the disciples away. He actually says, get in the boat and I want you to go across to the other side. But I'm going to stay up on the mountainside and I'm going to pray. And so he does that. And his follower, Matthew, who was in the boat when the storm was calm, is now in this boat again. And he says, this is what took place. We did it. So shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. I want you to pause for a second. Jesus went out to them on the lake after it had been quite a few hours of them rowing. And they were supposed to row to the other side. But as they started to do that, the storm hit them so powerfully that they couldn't win against the waves. And so they kept rowing and rowing and rowing and they're exhausted. It says a third watch of the night. So like potentially nine hours into the night, they're just rowing and they're exhausted. And Jesus goes out to them. He goes out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Now, I think this is kind of funny. I probably wouldn't if I was there, but I think it's kind of funny now. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, rather than seeing the person that they had just left on the hillside, they thought it was a ghost. So the most obvious explanation for that figure on the water was not that Jesus has power over creation and he's walking on it. It was that there has to be a ghost out there. And I think that's kind of interesting. It makes sense because you can't explain how a person can walk on water. It's got to be a ghost floating on the waves. There's no other explanation, but there they are. It's a ghost. And you have to remember, too, as Jesus finds them on the water, they're a ways away from shore, but they're still not where they were trying to go. Keep in mind, the only reason they're on the lake paddling their guts out is because Jesus told them to. So imagine 
Jesus tells you something you should do. You say, okay, I'll do that. When you go to do that, it goes really poorly. In the middle of it going really poorly, when you're sitting there thinking, why did he tell me to roll across the lake? Did he know there was going to be a storm? Maybe he even sent this storm. Why is Jesus doing this? And then he shows up. You're terrified. What are you feeling about this whole situation? So everyone in the boat, in that moment, frustrated, scared, it's a ghost. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In that split second, everybody in the boat has to make a decision. They see the ghost on the water. They're terrified. They're frustrated. They're tired. They're being obedient. All they're trying to do is what Jesus told them to do. And Jesus says, hey, take courage. It's me. You know my voice. You know my face. We were just together over there. It's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. What a wild person. Like, what is he even thinking? In my mind, I don't know if you guys are Ghostbusters fans. In my mind, I picture half the people in the boat are still reaching for their proton pack. And they're like putting it on. They're like, I'm about to blast this thing. And, and Jesus is still the ghost in their mind. And they heard him. And they're like, maybe I don't. And Peter's like, no time for that. Peter just jumps up. He's like, hey, I'd like to come out there. What a crazy person. Have you ever been in a moment like that? I mean, literally, no, that'd be weird. But have you ever been in a moment where God calls to you and he says, hey, take courage. You know my voice. It's me. Remember? And there's like this little spark that's lit and you're like, man, maybe I can trust God with this. Maybe I can trust him with whatever I'm feeling right now. And I actually want to be close to him. I actually want to go out on the water with him. That's what Peter does. While everyone's figuring out what they're going to do with the whole take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter's like, yep, I'm good. I'm going to, I'm going to come out there. And this is, this is when it gets even weirder. Jesus' response, come on. And Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. I love this story. Peter says, hey, if Jesus has power over the waves, if he can walk on the water, maybe he would lend me a little bit of that. Maybe what he understands about this moment, I could understand. Maybe what his body can do, mine could do. I have rarely ever even been able to touch that kind of faith, but Peter's got it in spades, and I think that's so cool. And I think it's even cooler that Jesus is like, yes, that's actually a really good idea. Come on out. Man. It doesn't say how far Peter got. It doesn't say what pace he was running at or walking on. I mean, he just threw the leg over the boat and just goes. And maybe it was like an icy morning in South Carolina kind of walk, you know, like, Ugh. Maybe he just sprinted. I have no idea, but he just goes. And I love that. Thinking about writing a worship song about it. I don't know. It might not work. So Peter goes and he walks on water for a second. He takes this faith and this do not fear and the it is I and the maybe if Jesus has power, I could have power to do it too. And he actually walks on this chaotic evil straight towards Jesus. And then you know, you know what happens next, right? Like, you take that step of faith and all of a sudden you're looking at Jesus and then whatever you brought with you is still with you. You know what I mean? Like in that, in that heart that, that fl faith is flickering in, there's something new going on. You're, you're reaching out and you're walking towards Jesus, but everything else that was already in your heart and your mind, like the doubt and the fear and the concern and the desire to control and I don't know what's going to happen next and is this, is this really an okay plan? All of that stuff come, it comes back and it, it makes Peter take his eyes off Jesus for a second and he starts to sink. And I think you've probably been in a moment like that too. I, I have. 
where you start to feel like maybe this isn't working anymore. Why did I even just, why did I even get out of the boat in the first place? What is the point of all this? It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. The desperate cry of so many of our hearts at certain moments in our lives is, Lord, save me. This is a moment people have bashed Peter for, but I think that's crazy. I think Peter's a legend for this. And I know it, it doesn't look good right now for him, but I still think he's a hero. In fact, I see this whole scene like super vividly in my head. I don't know if you work like that, but my imagination goes wild. I feel like this is like a superhero movie that just took place because what happens just in the scenery is powerful. The wind and the waves and the, the spray of water as it hits the boat and as it, the waves hit each other. And Jesus, I don't think he's got a swimsuit. I think he came out in his just robe that he was praying in. Like whatever the prayer robe was, that's the swimming robe. And he's walking on the water and everything is just soaking wet and his hair I'm sure is everywhere. And it's crazy looking. And Peter's doing the same thing. And in that moment, here's what I imagine. I don't know if you can get there, but like, some sort of like tear in the fabric of that scene. Like all reality was just kind of split for a second. Like all the stuff they know that's real is still real, but now all of a sudden they see this tiny little glimpse into a totally alternate reality that Peter just for a second gets. And he's like, this is the craziest thing I've ever experienced, but I want to fully experience it. And that's why I love Peter's response. Because he didn't wait for more information. He didn't like Google like what happens when Jesus is walking on water. Like he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of test it out a little bit. He just goes for it. I always want more information and more time to make a decision about whether I can trust God. And Peter doesn't need it. He just goes. If this is possible, I'm going to go with Jesus wherever he leads. And maybe you've been in a moment like that. When it starts to go south, it says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And I, I used to hear this story told and I used to hear the voice of, the, of Jesus in this moment. It sounded like my dad when I got in trouble. You know what I mean? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And like disappointment. I don't think that was it. The, the thing that's teaching me that I don't think that was it is that I have a six-year-old son. This kid is brave. Like he came out of the womb brave. And almost like scary brave. Like the stuff he does sometimes, I'm just like, that's, that's really a bad idea. I remember distinctly when he was like maybe not even three and physically shouldn't be able to do certain things. He jumps on a scooter that's too big for him, starts going down the hill in front of our house, starts to completely flip and somehow lands it like a cat. And he doesn't even know he should celebrate that. He's just like, on to the next thing. He's too brave, except for one area of his life. And just so happens to be the specific area where as a father, I am especially gifted in. As soon as James was born, some sort of genetic connection in my body took place. And I knew that my job was to throw him in the air really high. Do you know what I'm saying? Like as soon as he, like I remember very, very early, way too early in re retrospect, I just grabbed James and I was like, yeah, and my wife is terrified of this, obviously. What are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, but it feels right. And James, literally from the first moment I ever did that, his response was to physically lock up. He just, <laughs> eyes bugging, body tense. And I was like, well, that's weird. The other one didn't do that. <laughs> so I just keep doing it because I'm like, eventually, he'll, you know, he'll grow out of it. He didn't. 
I'm telling you, I have tried this. We're on a development plan. I have thrown him in the air. I have picked him up real quick and thrown him on my shoulder. I spin him around, and every time, just... (laughs) Brave James is terrified. And my response to him every single time is, James, why are you afraid, man? I know the answer for him, but I also know my reality. I'm trying to help him understand that like, it's true that it's kind of scary being picked up, but what's truer than that is that I have, and I'm not trying to brag, I have still not dropped him. (laughs) Not once. Perfect track record. And I'm trying to say to James, James, why are you afraid, man? You don't have to be afraid. I've never dropped you one time. I'm trying to show them there's there's a rip in the fabric of his reality. I know I could drop him, but I'm not gonna. And when I say, James, why are you afraid, man? Don't, don't be afraid. I'm not, I'm not scolding him. I'm trying to help him understand something. James, I don't want you to be afraid of this because I don't want you to be afraid of anything. And eventually he's going to get to a size where I can't pick him up and throw him. The point I'm trying to make is not that when you get picked up and thrown the rest of your life, you shouldn't be afraid. I mean, when you're like 17 and someone picks you up and throws you, you should be afraid of that person. What I'm trying to say to James is if I can pick you up and throw you and catch you and you can overcome your fear in that moment, maybe you can overcome fear in any setting in your entire life. I don't want you to be afraid. I'm not mad at James. I just want him to understand the reality I know about that he hasn't quite yet adopted. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's like, hey, Peter, you saw a glimpse. You saw behind the curtain. You saw the rip in the fabric of reality and you just saw a little glimpse and you were overwhelmed and you stopped. If you only understood what the rest of that reality looks like, you wouldn't have stopped and you wouldn't be afraid. In in fact, Peter, the question you would have asked in that moment is not if Jesus can walk on water, maybe I can walk on water. The question you would ask is if Jesus can walk on water, what else can he do? What can he not do? And so Peter hears that as Jesus is rescuing him. Verse 32 says, And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. As soon as Jesus gets in the boat, it's just calm. I almost picture like in the morning when you're driving next to the lake and it looks like glass. Right? And people who like to ski, they want to ski right then and there before anything stirs the water up. It's peaceful. It's almost like eerie peaceful. And we go from chaotic evil and waves everywhere to Jesus stepping in the boat and just like that. It's just calm, still. What do you think they talked about in that moment? What do you even say? Remember that? That was weird. (laughs) Peter, you were just like, no, they just stop everything and they say, truly, you're the son of God. And that phrase isn't actually that unique. Back in the day, again, people worshipped all kinds of things. And so calling someone a son of God wasn't actually abnormal. In fact, it was a title usually bestowed on like kings and emperors and heroes. And what they were saying is, maybe not you're literally the son of God, but like you're not a human. You may not be God. You're somewhere in between. Like Hercules is a son of God, right? Like heroes of war are the sons of God. Emperors and kings, you're almost a deity. You're not quite, but you're like the son of God in this moment. I don't think that's what they were saying. I'll tell you why. Two chapters later, Matthew records this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is actually following, he's being followed by a bunch of people, and they remembered all the miracles. And so they kept asking Jesus, hey, would you feed us more bread? Would you heal more people? And Jesus, for some reason, just stops. And he's like, no, I'm not going to show you any more signs. Jesus has shown so many signs, but in this moment, he's like, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not putting on a circus here. 
Like there was a purpose for all the miracles that I've, I've been doing. I'm showing you power over creation and power over your reality for a point, not just to entertain you. And so Jesus is hearing all these requests and he's denying them. And then he says to his disciples something really specific. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? After everything you've seen, who do you say I am? Peter, the same one that walked on water, said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the promised one. You're God embodied. You're it. And if that statement is true for these disciples, their life was never going to be the same again. All of reality is forever bent for these guys. And they're going to spend the rest of their life trying to figure out that answer. If God has power over this, what else does he have power over? There was a, uh, there's a moment I remember fondly in my childhood where my dad, who's huge, who buys weird vehicles, had a 1980 Chevy conversion van. And he takes this van, which won't start, and he starts pushing it from the driveway or from the, the parking lot next to us to the driveway. And at the same time, my three younger sisters are on a bus and they're pulling up to our house. And what they see is this giant of a man moving a van. What my daughters or my sisters see is the reason why they just can't wait to get away from their bus stop because their dad's embarrassing. What every young man sees on that bus that day is the reason they will never ask out one of the Irvin girls. Because when they see my dad doing that, they want to know if that guy can move that van, what else can he do? Right? Paul's trying to explain this to us later, and he's writing to a church in Colossae. And he writes this poem. He starts like this. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And, and in Jesus, you find that he does this weird thing next. He, he forms this new creation called the church. Somewhere in his plan, we make sense to him. And he says, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, even over death. And then it says this, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile himself to, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul's saying, listen, this invisible God who's been worshipped at a distance for all of these eons came and fully dwelt, fully embodied in Jesus. And his goal all along was to use all of the power he has over creation and everything else to fully reconcile all things to him, seen or unseen, external out there, things that have power over you or internal in here, the things that have power over you. And how would that be so fully expressed? How would that be best expressed? How would we know that that was Jesus's intention? Jesus' follower John writes in his account of the story, John 3, 16, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, what's normal about gods is that they claim to be powerful. 
Every God who's ever been worshipped has been worshipped because he's bigger, she's bigger, she's stronger, he's stronger. This is the first time in human history where a God claims to not only be powerful over all creation, but proclaims their affection for us and their desire to be near us. And then identifies the problem that there's a separation between us and God, which we already know about. Every human who's ever lived knows there's a separation between us and God. And then God, for the first time ever, through the person of Jesus, says, hey, by the way, I'm going to take care of that separation because you can't. No matter how you worship me, no matter how powerful your worship is, no matter what you do to worship me, you can't fix any of it. And yet I can, and I'm going to come and display that on the cross. What we celebrate at Easter is how Jesus once and for all showed his power over not only creation, but everything, even the things we least understand and least control. So I want to ask you, internal, external, where do you find yourself in the storm right now? Maybe you're tired of of rowing. You're doing exactly what Jesus called you to do, and you're weary, and you're just confused. Maybe you're like Peter. You're just excited to go out and join him. There's just a spark, and you're like, man, I just want to know God. Maybe you're in the midst of the sinking where you looked around and you were obedient and you're trying to do it and you're losing faith and you're just struggling. You're just like, Lord, save me. Maybe it's kind of after all that and you're sitting in the boat and you're with Jesus and you're just in this moment of worship and you're just saying, it's actually pretty calm for me right now and God is good. Praise the Lord. Maybe you're in a moment where you're looking around and you're starting to realize things are, are real for you. Things are, are steady for you in your faith. And, and the goodness of God is clear, but you're watching other people who are going through storms and they're struggling. And you're saying, man, I don't know what to do about all this. I want to remind you that Easter is the season where we encounter Christ in just those ways. And no matter where you find yourself in that process, an encounter with Christ is possible right now. And so I just want to pray I just want to ask you to consider where you're at right now with him. Father, I ask that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would talk to us. God, that wherever we find ourselves in the storm, wherever we find ourselves in our relationship with you, that your spirit would just be clear. And God, some of us right now in the room are asking, God, if you have power over all of that stuff, what what could that mean for my life? Could you calm the storms, the external, the big stuff that's pressing in on me? God, could you calm the internal storms, the the emotions, the thoughts, the desires that I can't figure out? God, the sin that I can't get away from. And God, I ask that you would give us the courage and the confidence to trust you with whatever it is that's standing out right now. God, for some of us, we're just thinking of a person or a family. And they're in the midst of it, God. And if they knew, if they believed that you were who you say you are, it would change everything. And God, as we see you, we want to have just this heart of worship like the disciples did. We just want to lift you up and we just want to say, surely you are the Son of God. And so we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.